Through the menorah, we emphasize knowledge and intellect. Through the incense, we emphasize the intellect's limitations. Faith, as Begin said, comes in part from knowing what we cannot understand. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 27, Serving God and Man in the Twilight Zone. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. In 1959, a TV series premiered that treated its viewers to fantastical and often frightening stories with a moral at their heart. The show would begin with the producer, Rod Serling, intoning in an eerie voice, There is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the Twilight Zone. Serling was right to emphasize twilight as a symbol of mystery, for it is the very joining of light and shadow, darkness and luminance, that captures one of the most mysterious moments in the temple and one of the greatest disagreements between Athens and Jerusalem. Today we will examine two of the most important objects in the tabernacle and temple. One was introduced earlier in Exodus. The other is discussed at our point in Scripture, immediately after the designs of the priestly garb. The first is the menorah, the golden candelabra lit every day in the holy. Here is its biblical description, Exodus 25, 31. And thou shalt make a candlestick of pure gold. Of beaten work shall the candlestick be made. Its shaft and its branches, its bowls, its knobs, and its flowers shall be of the same. And six branches shall come out of the sides of it. Three branches of the candlestick out of the one side, and three branches of the candlestick out of the other side. Three bowls made like unto almond blossoms in one branch, with a knob and a flower in one branch. And three bowls made like almond blossoms in the other branch, with a knob and a flower. So in the six branches that come out of the candlestick. And in the candlesticks shall be four bowls made like unto almond blossoms, with their knobs and their flowers. Unlike the later celebrated but more modern menorahs utilized for commemorating the miracles of Hanukkah, which feature eight branches emerging from a central shaft for a total of nine, here, in the original menorah, there are three branches on each side for a total of seven. Note the decorations, flowers, almond blossoms, all adorning branches. These are botanical and agricultural items. Describing the more modern menorah, Theodore Herzl, in a short story, one suggested something striking, a theory that is equally applicable to the original candelabra of the tabernacle. Herzl writes, quote, When had the primitive structure of this candelabrum first been devised? Obviously, its form had originally been derived from that of a tree. The sturdy stem in the center, four branches to the right and four to the left, each below the other, each pair on the same level, yet all reaching the same height. A later symbolism added a ninth shorter branch, which jutted out in front and was called the shamash, or servant. With what mystery, Herzl continues, had this simple artistic form, taken from nature, been endowed by successive generations, end quote. This is Herzl's theory. The golden candelabra is meant to embody botany. Could it be? It could indeed. And Herzl's hunch was confirmed by a man who was inspired by the movement that Herzl helped bring about. Ephraim Haruveni and his wife Hannah were botanists who emigrated to the Holy Land in the early days of the Yishuv. 
and they were obsessed with identifying the biblical plants of the Bible. They also sought a plant among Israeli soil that could have served as the botanical equivalent of the menorah, because they were convinced that when the menorah was first created, it was meant to serve as an artistic embodiment of a tree. And so they walked around the Holy Land, looking at specimens, and discovered the salvia plant, and one form of it native to Israel, known by the technical term salvia palestina, which looks exactly like a menorah, with branches that extend akin to the candelabra. The menorah, then, perhaps portrays a luminous tree. What sort of tree is this? Here the number seven is instructive. The book of Proverbs tells us of wisdom ewing her home with seven pillars. And medieval Jewish commentators spoke of seven branches of knowledge, and they therefore assumed that this candelabra is an embodiment of enlightenment. Adorned with flowers and buds, it becomes, essentially, a tree of knowledge. But if partaking of the tree of knowledge in Eden, embodied as we have seen, a sinful attempt on the part of man to devise one's own moral code, here the menorah in the sanctum, rooted in the sanctuary, signifies instead the inherent capacity of man to righteously seek knowledge and even to achieve intellectual greatness. And yet and yet, for all that Judaism is a faith deeply devoted to the human mind and its cultivation, Judaism also simultaneously stresses the dangers of intellectual arrogance. Perhaps the most famous episode of The Twilight Zone, ranked by TV Guide as the 11th greatest TV episode of all time, portrays an alien race known as the Canemites who land on Earth, insisting that their sole motive is to help humanity. And indeed, the Canemites cure disease, end the Cold War, and cause the deserts to bloom. Wondering whether the Canemites are truly sincere, a government official named Michael Chambers gets a hold of a Canemite book and employs a cryptographer to translate it. After much effort, she is able to translate its title page. The book is called To Serve Man. Assured now that the Canemites seek only to serve humanity, to help humanity, Chambers agrees to accompany the Canemites to their home planet. As he boards the ship, the cryptographer rushes toward him and shouts, Mr. Chambers, I translated the rest of the book. To serve man. It's a cookbook. Too late. Chambers is taken into the ship, and it departs toward his doom. And Rod Serling concludes the episode by saying, The recollections of one Michael Chambers. More simply stated, the evolution of man, the cycle of going from dust to dessert, the metamorphosis from being the ruler of a planet to an ingredient in someone's soup. It's tonight's bill of fare on The Twilight Zone. Ladies and gentlemen, the moral of this anecdote is clear. Chambers read to serve man in arrogance. He read the title the way he did. He interpreted it the way he did because he was so certain of his own importance and of the fact that anything in the universe, even the most mysterious and otherworldly, existed to serve him. Yet ultimately, this belief only ended up proving his own lowliness. Judaism believes that only in eschewing arrogance and recognizing our own limitations can true intellectual attainments be acquired. As Proverbs put it, the beginning of wisdom is the awe of the Lord. Professor Leon Cass, who taught Greek classics for many years, before also teaching seminars on the Hebrew Bible, was once asked to describe the difference in worldviews between these two incredibly influential intellectual traditions. As part of his answer, Cass reflected on the uniqueness of humility as an Hebraic virtue. 
And he said, quote, The peak of the Aristotelian ethical virtues is the great-souled man, the man of consummate nobility and goodness who goes in the city as if he were a god, end quote. Cass further notes that Aristotle several times says of the great-souled man, he wonders at nothing because nothing is great to him. Cass points out that reverent awe for Aristotle is something the young may have, but is not an admirable virtue for a mature man. Whereas, from a biblical perspective, as Cass further argues, the Greek approach leaves man without a fear of heaven, which is necessary for the Bible to act as a restraint on some of our worst impulses. A similar point was made by the great Talmud scholar, thinker, and teacher, Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein, in a Hanukkah lecture. The comprehensible nature of creation, Rabbi Lichtenstein argued, was central to Greek achievements. But this led as well to its deification of man. Judaism, Rabbi Lichtenstein argued, also emphasizes the intellectual capacity of humankind. But it simultaneously stresses that only in understanding our limitations in grasping that the universe is filled with mystery that we cannot explain, and that at the heart of this mystery lies God, only in acknowledging this can man truly become great. Menachem Begin was asked, in prison by the Soviets, how he reconciled faith with human intelligence. And he responded to his interrogator, quote, Faith does not stand in contradiction to intelligence, but man in his intelligence understands that there are things he cannot fathom by rationality, and so he believes in a higher power, end quote. It is with this in mind, ladies and gentlemen, that we can move from the menorah to another cultic object in the tabernacle that is introduced, chapter 30. And thou shalt make an altar to burn incense upon, of acacia wood shalt thou make it. A cubit shall be the length thereof, and a cubit the breadth thereof. Four square shall it be and two cubits shall be the height thereof. The horns thereof shall be of the same. This is the altar of incense, or in Hebrew, the Mizbach HaKetoret, which stood near the menorah in the tabernacle. Incense would be poured upon the altar's coals, and the sweet-smelling smoke would rise, create a cloud, and suffuse the sanctuary. It marked a moment of mystery, of communion with the divine. But here is what is odd. Exodus explicitly states in the same chapter, that this ritual of the incense is joined with another sacred rite. Verse 7, And Aaron shall burn thereon incense of sweet spices. Every morning when he prepareth the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron lighteth the lamps at dusk, he shall burn it. A perpetual incense before the Lord through the generations. The lamps is the menorah. Thus, Menorah and incense altar are kindled as one. Light emanates from the menorah, and it is immediately surrounded by sweet-smelling smoke. This seems aesthetically counterintuitive. The candelabra's very purpose is to illumine. Incense produces the opposite effect. Smoke obscures light, limits its luminance. As Rabbi Lichtenstein said, quote, The Torah teaches us that the incense always accompanies the lighting of the menorah. These are related not only in terms of time, but also on a much deeper and more fundamental level. The incense introduces a note of mystery. Smoke wafts from it and rises. Transcendental clouds hover over it and shroud the surroundings in a numinous haze. This is the antithesis of the clarity of light. 
Incense belongs not to our rational and logical world, but rather to the world of mysticism, outside our understanding and beyond our grasp, end quote. And that is exactly the point. Through the menorah, we emphasize knowledge and intellect. Through the incense, we emphasize the intellect's limitations. Faith, as Begin said, comes in part from knowing what we cannot understand. Or, as Rabbi Lichtenstein further puts it, quote, The Greek world strives to be one of pure light, but our world is different. The menorah is vital, but it is dialectically balanced by the incense. On the one hand, he continued, we of course esteem understanding and intellect, order and logic. On the other hand, we value an awareness of the mysteries of the universe and the mysteries within man, and first and foremost, an awareness of the hidden God. We always see the light of the menorah through the perspective of the smoke of the incense. End quote. Thus, ladies and gentlemen, as menorah and incense are joined, light merges with darkness and a sort of twilight zone is formed within the tabernacle. It was Yogi Berra, describing the shadows in Yankee Stadium's left field, who said, quote, it gets late early out there. Twilight, as a rabbinic friend and aficionado of the twilight zone once pointed out to me, twilight is itself a mix of both day and night. Therein lies its very mysterious nature. It is a mixture of sun and shadow, light and night. It is both late and early, dark and light, evening and afternoon. And the truth is that those of us who have experienced the truly mystical moment that is the twilight's last gleaming know that when the unique hues caused by the mixture of day and night suffuse the horizon, we truly sense the glory at the heart of creation. And we realize then that there is someone larger than ourselves behind this world, and that the world is not here merely to serve man, but for a higher purpose. The importance of joining intellect and faith was once understood. If one wishes to see the Hebraic impact on America, one can look to the way that Hebrew words for light, symbolizing knowledge, is joined with biblical symbolism on the seals of many early American universities. Perhaps most prominent is Yale, whose motto in Hebrew is taken from our own passages, Exodus 28.30, a reference to the way in which the priestly breastplate was utilized to seek wisdom from the divine. The Hebrew phrase on Yale's seal is urim vitumim, which Yale rendered as lux et veritas, light and truth. This, the Yaley Dan Oren wrote once in an article, referenced the university's original goal of joining light, human knowledge, with truth, the revelation of the Bible. Today, of course, the importance of joining education with humble biblical belief is not always appreciated, but it is still at times given eloquent expression. When the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia spoke at the U.S. Capitol for a Holocaust memorial ceremony. He reflected on the enormity of the evil that was perpetrated, and then he added as follows, quote, The one message I want to convey today is that you will have missed the most frightening aspect of it all if you do not appreciate that it happened in one of the most educated, most progressive, most cultured countries in the world, 
that Germany of the late 1920s and early 1930s was a world leader in most fields of art, science, and intellect. End quote. And then Scalia further reflected that, quote, this aspect of the matter is perhaps so prominent in my mind because I am undergoing currently the task of selecting a college for the youngest of my children, or, perhaps more accurately, trying to help her select it. How much stock we place in education, intellect, cultural refinement, and how much of our substance we are prepared to expend to give our children the very best opportunity to acquire education, intellect, cultural refinement. Yet, Scalia continued, those qualities are of only secondary importance to our children and to the society that their generation will create. I am reminded of words written by John Henry Newman long before the Holocaust could even be imagined. Knowledge is one thing. Virtue is another. Good sense is not conscience. Refinement is not humility. End quote. So Scalia said, and his words speak to our own subject. Menorah and incense, light and mystery, human intellect, joined with humble faith. This is what Judaism has always embraced. Our people has long celebrated intellectual excellence, but it has also emphasized that Jewish history is so mysterious and miraculous that not even the brilliant can truly fully comprehend it. Fittingly, in the old city of Jerusalem, the tradition is not to light the Hanukkah menorah when it is fully dark, but rather to start right after sundown, when the flames glow dimly in the dusk, the light and shadows working together in tandem to magnify the magic and mystery of that sacred city, as for a moment the tabernacle itself is seemingly brought back to life. The incense and the menorah reimagined as Jews in Jerusalem kindle candles in the twilight zone. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.